Hello, and welcome to the Quest Church San Diego Sermon Podcast. Our church has a passion to reach people who are far from God, teach them to follow Jesus, and launch them out to serve God in the world. If you're in the San Diego area, we'd love for you to join us for a service. Please visit questsd.com to learn more about us, find out service times, and explore our ministries. If you have any questions, send us an email at info at questsd.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's message. We're going to jump into our Bible study this morning. Let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. I find it interesting as we're jumping into the Christmas season that we're actually looking at a more traditional Easter message today as we wrap up our Gospel of Mark series that we've entitled Servant Savior, because in this gospel, we see Mark present Jesus as the Son of God, the Servant of Men, and the Savior of the world. And we are focusing in on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection today. And so I think it's okay every single Sunday we gather to say, He is risen, and you would say, He is risen indeed, right? And uh, because every single Sunday is a day of celebration, because without the resurrection, the gospel is pointless. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross is pointless. And so we're actually starting Christmas by looking at the purpose and the meaning of why Jesus came, why Jesus was born in the manger, why Jesus is Emmanuel, why he drew near to us, and that is to lay down his life, as he said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, I have come not to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the payment, and we're going to see that as we read through these Uh, chapters and and verses. We're going to cover chapter 15 and 16 today. We won't be able to read all of the verses, but we're going to understand everything that's happening here. And the point that we want to remember today is that the resurrection of Christ is the exclamation of the cross. And you have to have those two central to the gospel because without one, salvation completely falls apart then if there's no resurrection, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ has lost its power. And now that we do have the resurrection and the proof of the resurrection by the empty tomb, as well as the appearance of Jesus to eyewitnesses who would continue on to share that story even to this day, that um, it is the exclamation point. And it really is the proof of what Jesus has come to do. And so the title of the message today is Savior to the Sinner. It's the culmination of Mark's gospel in these 16 chapters of looking at Jesus serving and and, and ministering and loving. And in this last week of Jesus' life, he has spent time with his disciples celebrating the Passover meal. He's instituted a new covenant in his broken body and in his shed blood for the remission or the forgiveness of sin. He's been persecuted and betrayed and abandoned by his closest followers and associates. He's prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane if there was any other way that he didn't have to suffer on the cross, that that would take place. But nevertheless, he said, not my will, but yours be done. And uh, he stood trial before the religious rulers who came up with all kinds of fake and false accusations. And now we find, in these last closing chapters, we're going to look at these main events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion. The grisly crucifixion of Jesus Christ on a brutal cross. Secondly, we're going to see the glorious resurrection of Jesus from a burial cave 
from uh, the tomb. And then lastly, we're going to see the great commission that Jesus gives the disciples, the apostles, and even the church to share this good news message as one of the Christmas songs we sing during Christmas is, go tell it on the mountain, right? Over the hills and everywhere, right? So this is what we're going to learn. We're going to learn to take this message, particularly during this Christmas season, and share it with others. Jesus said, let your light So shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So a lot to get to. We're going to jump into, in fact, we're going to start in verse 16 in chapter 15. I know we're skipping quite a few verses there, but let me just make mention of a couple of things to set the stage. First is following from chapter 14, Jesus has just did trial before the religious rulers, the Sanhedrin, the uh, chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and, uh, and the Pharisees. And uh, they have created this accusation of blasphemy. And now, in order to have the authority to execute Jesus, they have to take that case to the Roman authorities. And uh, this is where we see Jesus stand trial before Pilate. And Pilate wants nothing to do with this case because he knows, as the scriptures in these previous verses here, tell us that the religious rulers brought Jesus because they were envious of him and they sought to destroy him. And there was a custom during this time of the Passover that the Roman authorities would release one prisoner as a sign, a good sign of gesture and goodwill. And uh, there's a man named Barabbas, which I think is interesting. When you look at the meaning of the name Barabbas, Bar Abbas, it means son of the father. And here we have this man who is a notorious, infamous sinner. He's an insurrectionist or a rebellion, leading a rebellion, which uh, was a murderer as well. So this man, Barabbas, deserved his, his penalty and his judgment to be put up on a cross. Here's the son of the father, but on the other side, we have this innocent one, Jesus. He's the true son of the father. He's the son of God. And he has come to take that that substitute for us. So Barabbas is positioned as someone to be released, but the religious rulers cry out, we want Jesus to be crucified. And now we see Jesus going to the crucifixion in verse 16. Look with me there. Then the soldiers led Jesus away into the hall of the praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison, all the soldiers, And they clothed Jesus with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. This was to mock him. And they struck him on the head and a reed, and and with a reed, and they spit on him. And bowing their knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off of him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to be crucified. And then they compelled a certain man, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear Jesus' cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated a place of the skull. And they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. Now that's interesting because this was kind of like a, a liquid Tylenol, if you will, of the day. It was uh, something to ease his pain. It was a pain reliever. And notice what Jesus does here. He doesn't take any of the pain relief because he takes all of the pain in in his body for you and I. He doesn't want an easy way out of the pain because it is his passion and his love for for us. He didn't take any of that. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. 
And now it was the third hour, and they crucified Jesus. And in the inscription of his accusation was written above him, This here is king of the Jews. And with him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. Now Mark's gospel, as we've already mentioned, is very quick, and uh, he is writing to Gentile believers Whereas the Gospel of Matthew is dealing with the Jews, so there's a lot of reference in Matthew's Gospel to uh, Old Testament prophecies that are being fulfilled. And there's so many verses that you could read and overlay with the events of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And this last week of Jesus' life, particularly even on the cross, of fulfilling prophecies in the Old Testament. And this was important to note and make mention. And then jump down with me to verse 33. And now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now Mark includes one of Jesus' last words, but if you look at the rest of the Gospels, there's actually seven last words of Christ. And... uh, This is the one that he records here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Up until this point, Jesus was forsaken by all. He was forsaken by the religious establishment. He was forsaken by his family and friends. He was forsaken by Peter, his closest associate, as well as the apostles and the disciples. And now he's forsaken by the Father. And why do you think he was forsaken by his heavenly Father? Well, Jesus was forsaken by the Father in order to give forgiveness to the sinner. He had to be the one who was forsaken, even though we deserved our sin, uh, or excuse me, our, our, our judgment um, and our penalty because of our sin. Jesus took all of that for us on, on the cross. And some of those, notice in verse 35, standing by said, look, he is calling out for Elijah. And then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to Jesus to drink, saying, let him alone and see if Elijah comes. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last breath, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Here's a declaration of a Roman centurion, a guard standing and witnessing the events of Jesus' crucifixion and proclaiming what Peter proclaimed just a couple of weeks before, saying, you are the Son of God, you are the Christ. And so in these verses, I just want to make mention of a couple of things as we look at the crucifixion, that Jesus was crucified on this grisly cross and a brutal cross. First, we see a sinner, and that sinner is... uh, pictured here in Barabbas, as well as we see the Savior, Jesus coming as the Savior, and he is also the substitute. As I mentioned Barabbas, the name, I think I can obviously, all all of us can identify with this Barabbas and, and his story and even his background because everybody knew who Barabbas was in that area and during this time. He was a notorious and infamous sinner. Now, if you go back to your days when you were running wild uh, before Christ came into your life or you surrendered your life to Christ, you and I were really good at sinning, weren't we? We were professionals at it, and uh, we were infamous. Everybody knew all of our sin, and there was no way to run away from it. 
there was no way to deal with it. There was no way to fix it. And here, Barabbas is a picture of the one who really deserves the penalty and the judgment. Every single one of us, as the Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And the Bible also says in the book of Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin being a very small word, only three letters, but can destroy an entire life. Every single one of us, all of humanity is is infected with this sin. And even though we are similar like Barabbas, we're sons of our heavenly father, we have rebelled against God. We have rejected God's love. We have run away from God. But who has stepped in? The innocent Savior. Here is Jesus Christ. As John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the innocent Savior who was condemned to die for you and I. And this Savior comes and is put to death. He is condemned to die on a brutal cross. And we read the events of Jesus' crucifixion. He was beaten, and he was mocked, and he was cursed, and he was hung on a tree and pierced and put a crown of thorns upon his head, all as a great passion and love for you and I. And so if that's the case, if Jesus has come as the innocent Savior, he's also the incredible substitute. He's the one who has taken the place of of you and I. And Jesus really is, as we read these verses, the incredible substitute for all despicable destitutes. That's you and I. It's all of us. We're despicable in our sin. We're lost and we're apart uh, from God. And our sin separates us from God. In fact, as the story continues on, we're told that Jesus cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, I think every single one of us can identify with those who are looking at Jesus on the cross and shaking our fist at Jesus, cursing Jesus. And we do that in and through our sin. But yet there is a way of reconciling that relationship, of forgiving us of our sins. And it is in the incredible substitute of Jesus Christ on the cross. And Jesus says, you have forsaken me but in this forsaking of Jesus it provides us with the forgiveness of sin and then lastly we see here the the veil being torn I think that's really important for us to kind of uh, highlight and understand because the temple was the place where God's presence was the temple was the place where God's people met with him and offered their worship and offered their sacrifice and there was the holy of holies that was separated by this very tall thick embroidered veil and there's only one person who could go into the holy of holies pass through this veil and this curtain and inside the holy of holies was the ark of the covenant and the ark of the covenant on top of that was the mercy seat it was called the mercy seat and there were angels or cherubim that were fashioned out of gold and it was this place where the sacrifice of atonement the blood of the sacrifice of atonement once a year was sprinkled upon the mercy seat and the high priest was the only person who could go in past the veil into the holy of holies and sprinkle this blood upon the mercy seat and yet just a couple of days before Jesus is saying that's the sprinkling of my blood which is sacrifice on the cross for you would be the remission and the forgiveness of all humanity so here we have the son of the father Jesus Christ the innocent lamb His blood being sprinkled. And the book of Hebrews tells us that now Jesus is our great high priest. 
And because the veil was torn from top to bottom signifies that it is God's work, not man's work. Religion is man's approach to God. What can we do? It's our approach to reach up to God. But uh, biblical Christianity is what Jesus has done for us in coming down and tearing the veil. And that means that there's no separation anymore. That the inaccessible barrier that was between us and God has been torn. There's no longer a barrier. That we now, as the book of Hebrews says, can come boldly into the throne of grace to obtain mercy, the mercy seat, to obtain mercy and help in time of need. And it's through Jesus, the one who escorts us and acts, gives us the access into the presence of God. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We can come boldly into the throne of grace by His wounds. Uh, our transgressions and our sins are forgiven. In the events of Jesus' crucifixion, we see the great exchange of Christ. The innocent Savior comes as the incredible substitute for the infamous sinner, you and I. And now we have access. Now, all of this would mean nothing if three days later Jesus didn't raise from the dead. And notice what happens. Jump down in verse six, excuse me, chapter 16, verse 1. And we read the events of the resurrection and the importance of this resurrection. And now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint Jesus' body. We're told that Jesus was laid to rest in his uh, tomb very quickly because of the Passover. And so these women are bringing these spices in order to prepare the body for the decaying process and the embalming process. And very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Now we're told in the other Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, and as well as in Luke, that these women were really broken and confused. And all of their hopes and all of their dreams and all of their desires for what Jesus meant to them and what he came to do was completely crushed. They were filled with depression and they were downcast. And they even ask a question here in verse 3. And they said to themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us. This is a very large stone that was rolled in in front of the tomb. And there was guards, we're told, that were placed in front of the tomb so that nothing suspicious happened to Jesus' body. And so these women weren't going to be able to remove this stone. So they're asking these questions filled with a lot of worry and anxiety and even fear. And yet in verse 4, But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. The other Gospels tell us that this is an angel. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. Everyone say risen. risen. All right. It's good Easter service right here. He is risen. He is not here. See the, pl the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, that he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him as he had said to you. So he reminds him of the words of his prediction previously to his disciples. But I find it interesting that uh, Jesus says specifically, and Peter. 
Because Peter was part of the disciples. He was one of the disciples. He's perhaps even the leader of the disciples. But yet Jesus names him specifically and says, I want you to go tell Peter. Now we know at the end of chapter 14 that Peter ran away from the trial of Jesus in the middle of the night, betraying him and weeping and crying because of his betrayal to Jesus. And now Jesus, after his resurrection, says, I want you to tell Peter. I want you to let him know. I want him to be there. I want him to hear that everything is going to be okay. It's all right. And I just love that because there's second chances, there's third chances, there's a thousand chances when it comes to the grace of God in our lives. Even though we walk away from God from time to time, we may deny him or reject him, that his mercy says, it's okay, I love you. No matter how many times we walk away from God, Jesus is continuing to pursue us with his love. And he does that for Peter. He'll do the same for you and I. And so in verse 8, they went out quickly and fled from the tomb. And uh, they trembled and they were amazed and they said, and, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And now when he rose early on the first day of the week, that's Jesus, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he cast seven demons. Can you imagine this woman's life? You could spend a couple weeks just looking at this woman, how Jesus delivered him. And this, this is the first person who Jesus appears to. He appears to the women so that they can go and share this message. And that message goes on to the disciples. And from the disciples, it goes on to Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, it goes on to the Judea. And from Judea, it goes on to Samaria. And from Samaria, it goes on to the uttermost parts of the earth. And it continues on even to this day. And uh, here Mary Magdalene sees Jesus. And she went and told those whom had been with him. And they mourned and they wept. And when they had heard that he was alive and that he was seen by her, they did not believe. And after that, Jesus appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. There's a lack of faith. In fact, in the following verse, Jesus is going to rebuke their lack of faith and hardness of heart. So in these verses, wonderful verses, powerful verses, very important verses, uh, bringing together the purpose and the mission of Jesus' birth as well as his death, we see the resurrection of Jesus from this burial cave. There's a couple of uh, events that are happening here. One is that the, roll, the stone is rolled away, excuse me, and in the Gospel of Matthew we're told there's a great earthquake that happens and then the stone is rolled away. And uh, so Jesus' resurrection not only shook that region, but it shocked the world in the resurrection of Jesus. But the stone was rolled away. Now, we know something very interesting about Jesus' resurrection body. We know that he could eat because he has a meal with a couple of his disciples after his resurrection. We know that he appears to Thomas just a, a little bit later because Thomas was doubting. Thomas didn't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. So he said, unless I touch Jesus, unless I feel him, I will not believe. And Jesus appeared to Thomas and said, Thomas, look, it is I. Touch, handle me, and see and then Thomas believes. But Jesus also has a body that is able to pass through walls. He's able to pass through doors and, and, uh, and buildings so that he appears immediately in front of his disciples. So he has this resurrection body. So why did the stone need to be rolled away if he could just pass right through it? See, the stone wasn't rolled away so that Jesus could get out. It was rolled away so that we could go in. 
so that we could go into the tomb and see that it is empty and see that Jesus has accomplished what he has claimed that he would accomplish in his death, burial, as well as in his resurrection, so that we could verify, so that we could assess, so that we could examine, so that we could take this message and share it with other people, so that we could see with our own eyes. As Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He he or she who believes in me, though he die, yet shall they live. And here we have the glorious resurrection of Jesus, really proving, this is very important because these events are connected in the crucifixion as well as the resurrection, because the resurrection is the receipt. It's the itemized receipt of all of humanity and all of our sin. It's like when you make a purchase and and you see all of those things that you bought, and it's itemized for you. You can see on that receipt all of your sin, all of my sin, all of our sin. It's all listed. And the resurrection is the receipt of salvation. It is proving that the payment of the cross was received and paid in full. It proves that the cross was sufficient. So basically, there were sufficient funds, if you will, in the bank for Jesus to pay for all of humanity. Now, if we were to approach God or try to earn God's love or earn God's approval or earn our own salvation, there would be insufficient funds. We would not have what is necessary in order to receive or to earn or to buy or to purchase. That's why Jesus came, to die on the cross as the innocent Savior and the incredible substitute, but also to hold, to hold the receipt And to show us every single day that the funds were sufficient in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in order to forgive every single sin that is listed and marked in your life. You know what that tells me? That tells me that God has great love for us. That there's there's no greater love than this, than one would lay down his life for his friends. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now we think about the world. God so loved the world. Okay, well, there's a lot of people on the world. But how about you put your name right there and make it personal. For God so loved me that he gave his only begotten son. Here is the son of the father coming. And I guess when I was reading those verses, I paused because I was thinking about how it said Jesus breathed his last. And yet... Here at Christmas time, we're also thinking about Jesus breathing his first. Those first little cries, those innocent little cries that come from the cradle all the way through his teachings of, of, of love and of grace and of mercy and of the power of God and, and the forgiveness of sin, but even crying out his last upon the cross and now the words to his disciples saying, touch me, handle me, and see, it is I. He appears to his disciples to dispel all the gossip, to dispel all of the rumors, and to make very clear. And I find it interesting because every single one of these eyewitnesses, when they were given an opportunity to recant their stories, can you imagine if all of these people just got into the room after this and said, okay, we're going to come up with a plan. We're going to steal Jesus' body in the middle of the night, and we're going to make this crazy story about how he's resurrected and how he's given us his power and so on and so forth. Do you realize that not too many years after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus into heaven, there was great persecution that came upon the early church? 
And because they were followers of Jesus, and because they were saying Jesus is alive, he's resurrected from the dead, they were, go, they were being put in prison. They were being beaten. Uh, they were being persecuted. They were being run out of town and losing their businesses, families, and friends. You would imagine that if they came up with this story, they would say, oh, wait, 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 hold on. There's a big mistake here. I'm sorry. We made all this stuff up. Jesus really didn't resurrect from the dead and wash their hands clean of this crazy story. But every single one of them, all of these eyewitnesses, not only are sharing from place to place during these times and these events, they also went to their death. They were crucified on a cross. Peter was crucified, as church history tells us, crucified on a cross. And he said, I can't be crucified on a cross because Jesus was crucified on a cross. I'll be crucified on a cross upside down. Or I'll be burned at the stake. And this proves that their testimony is valid and sure. Now, the interesting about this is in verse 14. Jesus, as he meets with his disciples, he rebukes their unbelief. And their lack of faith. And biblical faith really is just trust in God. Trusting in what he has done. Now, if you want to have more faith, the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. If you want to increase faith, which is very immaterial because it's not something that you can physically touch. But faith and trust grows as we grow in the word of God. And this unbelief is rebuked by Jesus because they had an unbelief and a hardness of heart. They wanted to see. And oftentimes, we just want to see it. We want to touch it. We're very similar to Thomas in this way. But faith allows you and I to receive personally what we can't receive or even perceive physically. See, the disciples wanted to perceive it and touch it physically. But faith is not that way. Faith is seeing things not by sight, right? We don't walk by, we walk by faith, the Bible says, not by sight. And Jesus is teaching the disciples as well as teaching us that the testimony of these women, the testimony of these disciples is a testimony that I want all of us to take seriously. If you have not received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you have not accepted him and received that substitute for your sins on the cross, then you can do that today by receiving and understanding this great witness and testimony of those who saw it firsthand. And then lastly, we see the great commission of Jesus. And uh, look with me in verse 15, and we'll close with this and partake of communion. And he said to them, as he is with them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. So baptism is not a criteria, a prerequisite for salvation. It is a following to the work of salvation by grace through faith you have been saved. And this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And these signs will accompany those who believe in me. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. And they will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. This is the work of the kingdom of heaven on earth. God working in and through his disciples and through his people. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and they preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the company of signs. Amen. Isn't it just like Mark to end quickly as he was running through these Short 16 chapters. But here in these remaining verses, 
We see Jesus commission the disciples, the early church, you and I, with a bold commandment. And notice that it is really a serious command. It's not a suggestion. Jesus isn't saying, well, if you want to, why don't you go out and tell people about this story? Why don't you tell them about the resurrection? No, this is not a subtle suggestion. The Great Commission. The word commission means uh, to be sent, someone who is sent out. And in God's nature, he is a sending God. Just follow with me through the scriptures. That God sent Jesus uh, to you and I. He sent Jesus to planet Earth. And uh, Jesus, we're told in the Gospels, that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. And we're also told that the Holy Spirit sends the church. And we see that the church sends people. And so we are, in our very nature, according to God's nature, missionary people, uh, mission-oriented people, and uh, commissioned. Now, you don't have to be a pastor at a church. You don't have to be on staff at a church. You don't have to have a Bible or theological degree. To be a person who is a follower of Jesus, commissioned and sent by him to be lights wherever you're at. In your sphere of influence and with your circle of friends and in your world where God has placed you because we gather on Sunday mornings for worship, but what do we do the rest of the six days? We scatter for witness. We scatter to share, and that's really why our vision here at the church is Jesus' vision as described here in these verses in the Great Commission, to reach people who are far from God. How are we going to reach people? The majority of people who need Jesus are not in this building. Now, I know all of you need Jesus, and we have many shirts and bumper stickers that say that. Y'all need Jesus if you're from the South or Texas. Everybody needs Jesus. We know that. But the majority of people who need Jesus are not in this room. They're in our neighborhoods. They're at our work. They're in our schools. They're in our grocery stores, and so on and so forth. And so in order for us to reach people, we got to be able to go out. And Jesus says, I want you to go. Now, what do you do when you reach people for Jesus? Well, you teach them to follow Jesus. You don't teach them to follow a church or a denomination or a person or a charismatic leader or a great communicator or anything like that. You focus them on Jesus. And when you focus them on Jesus, you focus them on the word. That's what Jesus describes for us. And after we are are, are saved and we're, we're following Jesus, what happens? It brings us great significance and purpose and meaning to life. So that now when we go from this place, we're launched out. We, uh, we have a mission. We have a purpose. And, and God brings that mission and purpose, as he describes here, to go and tell, to tell everybody who we can. And we could do that with words. We could do that with actions. We do that by shining our light, by being different, by looking attractive to the world in the sense of, how are you getting through that diagnosis when you should have no hope? How are you making it as a single mother with four kids and you're working two or three jobs? How are you getting through the pain of losing a loved one? Well, let me tell you, it's because Jesus Christ is with me. And you look differently and you sound differently than the world. And that is very attractive, like, like, uh, like, like light to a moth, if you will. It draws people to Jesus, that they would glorify Jesus and be attracted to him. So I'm just going to have our worship team come on up because they're going to lead us in a closing song. But I want us to remember just a couple of things as we're closing down this, this gospel, as we're heading into Christmas, as we're reflecting really on the true meaning and significance of, of, of Christmas and of Jesus' life. Savior to the sinner. He's come to lay down his life. Well, first and foremost, I would hope that every single one in this, of us in this room or those who are, are joining us online would make certain that you have received the substitute of Jesus Christ for your sin. 
And if you have not done so, let me encourage you. As we sing this song, in the quietness of your own heart, the Bible says, if you confess your sin to God, he is faithful to forgive you. That if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friends, there is no greater significance than that. There is no greater decision than that. Make certain that your life is made new in Christ today in the quietness of your heart, confessing your sin, receiving him as your Lord and Savior, acknowledging that he is the substitute for you on the cross and that the resurrection, even the res- his resurrection, he gives you power over death and uh, over sin as well. But we also have the great opportunity to continue into this Christmas season remembering his great love for us. That when Jesus' blood is on us, the bondage of sin is off of us. And that's a beautiful thing as we reflect on the sacrifice of our Savior. So with that, let's pray. And we're also going to partake of communion this morning. And uh, let me encourage you, as the worship team is singing and playing the music of this song, you can go back to uh, the back tables and pick up your communion elements and come back to your seat and we'll partake of communion together. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for your love. Thank you as we reflect on this crucifixion, resurrection, and commission. We think about the pain, the agony, and the suffering that you endured for us. And as we partake of communion this morning, It's a great reminder of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. We also thank you that there is no barrier anymore to come right into your presence. And I pray right now across this room, we would come boldly, being ushered by Jesus Christ for any mercy or any help or any grace that these precious people need from you today. Lord, we love you. And help us to live faith-filled lives this Christmas. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for the Quest Church San Diego Sermon Podcast. We hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions about the Bible, need prayer, or recently made a commitment to follow Jesus, we'd love to hear from you please visit questsd.com to get connected. You can also send us an email at info at questsd.com to let us know how God is using these messages to encourage you in your walk with Jesus. Until next time, we pray you have a blessed week.